0: Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. In this episode, I speak with former professional cyclist, Rochelle Gilmore.
1: Uh, There was no way at that point in Delhi that I was going to come home with a silver medal. Rochelle
0: has been a game changer for women's cycling. There's the achievements on the bike as one of the top Australian cyclists, including the Commonwealth Games Gold in the road race in 2010. And then there's what she's done off it frustrated at the conditions and treatment of women's cycling teams, she used her own contacts, experience and business nows to launch her own Wiggle Honda team and doing so set a new standard for women's professional cycling. She also stepped in to help Cycling Australia's women's development program when it was going to be shut down. But for all the challenges she faced as a rider and a team owner, they all pale in comparison to her next endeavour, to scale Everest. At 40, Rochelle is currently training to reach the top of the world, quite literally. Her story, though, begins in unconventional fashion, growing up in a cyclist paradise just south of Sydney.
1: Oh, I was just sport everything. Any sport I could do, I was just so into everything. Um, I had two older brothers, so anything they did, I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it better. But um, yeah, little Rochelle was just motorbikes, BMX um, because of the two older brothers, of course, and then a little bit mm. older, little athletics, swimming club, surf club, tennis, netball, you know, just everything I could possibly do. Because you grew up where I live now, don't you, um, north of, of Wollongong? It Was at Stanwell Park where you grew uh, up? So my grandparents' place was at Helensburg. I remember the um, national cycling coach telling me that I grew up in the best possible area for a cyclist anyway we've got the national park you know we've got the flat roads if you want to go out towards Wollongong across the top so it's got a mm. bit of everything and um, yeah I've I had the best childhood I can you know imagine so yeah very very active childhood. And you
2: you grew up With your grandparents. Um, Can you explain to me how that happened?
1: Yeah, when I was um, six years old, my parents got divorced and wanted to live in different areas. Um, So they were living in Helensburg uh, and my grandparents were there. So my brothers and I uh, lived with my grandparents, I think from the age of about seven or eight. And um, Mm. it was a pretty unique way to be brought up because Mm. our grandparents were... um, They looked after a lot of like stray kids as well So and my cousins. Mm. So at the dinner table, um, we would have sometimes like 15 people and Mm. um, we didn't have any rules except that we had to shower before we went to bed and dinner was on the table at 5pm and if it was not eaten by 6pm, it went in the bin. So, yeah, we, we didn't have, you know, what time we had to go to bed, um, what time we had to be home at night, what, if we wanted to go to school, we went to school. If we didn't want to, we didn't have to. Mm. So they said, um, to my parents, they will provide for us, but they, they Mm. won't discipline us. So we didn't Mm. have, we didn't have rules. And I think that's kind of, I'm grateful for that because we had to make our own decisions. And, um, Mm. I think that really, really helped with my upbringing and, um, you know, going to Europe and being so self-sufficient and independent that you, yeah. you, you have to make your own decisions and be responsible for those decisions. Because that was my next question. Given
2: that upbringing, which is so unusual, what impact did that have? But you think it was a positive thing that you had more independence?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Both. For did you most- take advantage of it though? Uh, did we did, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes we would... Um, ride horses down to the big dam and just stay there for two or three days just sleeping under the stars and, you know, we'd blow wow. up these cans of baked beans in the fire and, you know, um, <laughs> we'd, get, we'd get these little um, motorbikes and we'd just ride them around the local depot at the tip and, yeah, we did. Mm. We ran, we ran right a little bit. We took advantage of that but um, mm. I, still, I still think it was a real, real positive, especially with me, with my sport. And my, mm. I can remember my, my grandma saying that um, maybe you could do a little bit better if you went to bed earlier. So I think I was only mm. about eight years old then and I started to go to bed at 8.30 every night. And I thought she, mm. said, she said to me the hours before midnight are the most important. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to bed at 8, 8.30 every night.
2: Right. She had her ways then of doing that. When you said stray kids, do you mean kids who... Well, in uh,
1: in Helensburg there was a lot of kids who ran away from home or, you know, um, mm. because it's a, a little tiny town that's very hard to get out of when you're young. Um, there's only mm. very few, few trains that children are not normally allowed to catch. Um, so... Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of kids that had fights with their parents and wanted to leave home. And my my grand grandma and grandpa always had their doors open and beds available for um, children to stay. So one of those one of those kids still actually lives with my family at the moment. One of my brother's best uh, friends. So um, right. there would be people come and go all the time. And um, my grandparents had a very active. Um, Life being involved in the church, running the church, and also being um, the head of the Masonic Lodge. They had events mm-hmm. on all the time. They had lots of friends come over to choir practice mm. and, you know, things like that. So there was always just loads of people in and out of the house.
2: Yeah. Did you still keep a close relationship with your parents, even though you weren't living with them?
1: Um, for, for a period, no. I think between mm. maybe, say, nine years old until 16, um Mm. you know we'd speak a a couple of times a week um briefly if we could but um Mm. then uh when they both got remarried and settled down again um Mm. then our relationships became a lot closer again so now I spent spend as much time as I possibly can when I'm in Australia with my father he's got two younger Mm. children now and um very close relationship with them and um with my mum, she comes to Europe all the time to stay with me. And um, I've just dropped into Dubai to stay with her for a couple of weeks before I get back home mm. for the Wollongong World Championships. Are they um, were they young? Is that why? Is that all or... Yeah, I think they got married very young, um, mm. and had children very young, super young. Mm. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Did it affect you anyway,
2: like not having them around in those in those teenage years?
1: Uh, In the way that I still crave, I crave that love and affection that I Mm. guess I didn't get then. Um, Mm. I really um, probably in the last few years I've just realised that, you know, they are my parents and um, they're Mm. both very unwell. So Mm. I try to even know they're uncomfortable with hugs. I try to do that all the Mm. time. (laughs) And mum might be, "Ah, get off me, get off me. But um, I try to be really affectionate and um, I want to be. Um, It's just a bit foreign for them. So,
2: Mm. yeah. Yeah. But it's not foreign for you?
1: Well, it it is. I mean, I've had to have some psychology about my parents, Mm. um, how to deal Mm. with them. And one of the things I was taught was to try and Give them a hug, put your arm around them, Mm. just because I wanted to be closer and get a closer connection. I'm still working Mm. working on it, but um, I I think in the past year, um, that I've become super, super close with both of them.
2: Yeah, that's good. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really, Mm. um, really fascinating. You, how did you find cycling? Because I know you were super active in surf club. You were really successful in, um. And and um, I know that because my you were like in surf club with my husband as well at some stage. Oh (laughs) wow, that's crazy. (laughs) But um, but you were really you were really sporty kid. But cycling, and we're the same age when we were growing up, wasn't what it is now. There weren't groups of people going for rides everywhere. It wasn't like the thing that people did. So what was that era like and how did you find cycling and what was your first thoughts about it when you when you started riding?
1: Well, because I had been um, <coughs> travelling with a group down to South Lakes and to do BMX, um, training and racing uh, on the weekends around surf club. They were my two main sports were surf club and BMX um Mm -hmm. the weekend sports that I would do and um I was I was identified at school as having uh talent as a potential professional athlete and uh Mm. they sent sent a letter in the mail came to my grandparents place and uh it said that I'd been identified in the top one percent of Australia's potential talent and there was a list list of sports that they recommended I'd be good at and they Mm. were they were mountain biking, triathlon, rowing, and cycling. And all I thought to myself was that I loved BMX and I loved pedaling, but back then BMX BMX was not an Olympic sport. Mm -hmm. So I thought cycling makes sense. Um, I mean, all of those sports I probably would have enjoyed, but I'm I'm so Mm -hmm. glad that I chose cycling because Mm. it allowed me to travel the world. And you know you can race every day of the week, whereas a lot of other sports they might have ten world cups in a year. Whereas in in road cycling, and you can race all the time. So um, it's provided me with a great lifestyle. But um, yeah, when yeah. I when I got my first road bike, my first thought was. Oh my! This bike is so huge. I don't even used to the the, the little BMX little, bike, yeah. and I was only thirteen years old when they they came and delivered this up. Uh, bike and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, whoa, it's huge. And you know, (laughs) they, they provided cycling clothing and shoes and all that kind of stuff and explained why we, why cyclists shave their legs, why you don't wear underpants under your bib shorts, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm just sitting there just being like way overwhelmed. And uh, the coach left and I went straight out onto the street on this really big bike. And I was like, wow, this is huge. And he'd forgotten to give me something, so he turned around and came back. And he said to me years later that he knew that I was going to be good because he'd never known anyone to just get straight out there and have a go. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it would have seemed almost
2: foreign to you. I know, obviously, you did BMX, but those bikes, was that with clip-ins
1: and everything would have been insane. Yeah, it was. um, And I remember then the that weekend they said that I could come and watch a race and when we got there I think it was Tour of Mudgie or Wagga Wagga or somewhere and I went on the bus and um with Benny Kirsten and all these other cyclists Mm. and I said to the coach when we got there I want to race I want to race and it was a 23 kilometer (laughs) road race and I'd been used to doing a 30 second BMX race and I can just yeah. remember being out there on the road looking, no, I can't see anyone in front of me, I can't see anyone behind me and I was waiting for that <laughs> witch's hat where you turn around and come back and I was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> this is so far, so different to doing explosive BMX and then going just, I'm out on the road yeah. and I'm just peddling away. Yeah. So, yep. um, so what age
2: were you when they came to Bulleye High and, and did all that testing? Uh, 13. 13? Yeah, and did you think when they were doing that testing, mm, I could be, I could be on here? This could be the start of my career at all? Did you have any idea what was happening?
1: Um, not really. I just knew that I could skip a few classes to do sport. Um, so it was an option that they said, uh anyone that wants to skip a few classes and in the afternoon do some sports testing. And I'm like, Yes, that's me, please. Um <laughs> and it was a range of testing um where they did a beep test and agility test and how high you can jump and throw a ball and do a mm. long jump and do a hundred meter sprint. We did an eight hundred meter run, all that kind of different stuff. And then I was selected to go to the next level where you went to the Illawarra Academy of Sport and you did like a mm-hmm. VO, VO2 max test and um, mm-hmm. on, a, on a bike and then same thing on the roller. And they did some, you know, blood lactate testing and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and then you get selected to go to the next level that was at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And, yeah, and I think when I went in there that I realised, Oh, this is all very scientific, and you know I'm Professor So and So, and yeah. So, no, it was a, re- a really. I think the Talent ID programs has picked up a lot of a mm. lot of cyclists. You hear um, mm. in their stories that they've come through the Talent ID programs.
2: So, how did you know that you wanted to be a cyclist in Europe? How did you even know about that?
1: I wanted to be a professional athlete since I think three or four years old, watching the Olympics mm. on TV. And not specifically in BMX or cycling. I mean, I did gymnastics pretty seriously as well as part of the AIS program, Um, but I just wanted to be an athlete. Um, You know, I think the Olympics is what inspired me, and that's the thing that uh, has eluded my career. I I never went to the Olympics, Um,
0: Mm. and
1: That's um, for me probably one of the most disappointing things. Um, Being a road cyclist is what I chose in the end and that meant for me being a sprinter that I'd have to wait every four years to see if the course would be relatively flat. Um, Mm. I was not a climber and most of the Olympic courses they try to make pretty hard. So I didn't even want to put my hand up for selection knowing that, okay, that course doesn't suit me. And I was mm. wait, waiting for a relatively flat course, but we, we haven't seen an Olympics very flat. So, mm. yeah, that's, that's quite disappointing. But, um, yeah, I don't think I, I could become a mountain climber. <laughs> well, actually, that, that is what I am right now. But um, yeah. c- cycling-wise, um, I just have that, and I think it's from my BMX background, a very explosive sprint.
2: Mm. And how important is it? Or if you want to be a professional cyclist to go to europe if you're australian
1: well you have to go to europe um mm. so we, we only have the january racing um here at, at uh, the highest level of racing where the europeans mm. come out and they do the tour down under um and then the Cadell's race so mm-hmm. if you want to make it as a professional mm-hmm. cyclist you have to be based in europe so it is um a big step and now mm. the development program I was in doesn't exist for the female road cyclist Mm. um, which is super super disappointing but um yeah that that now the step to get from domestic racing here in Australia to Europe is is very difficult. Mm. And you never
2: went back after that that was it your life is in in Europe and you live in in Europe so you've pretty much lived in Europe since you were 16 um
1: did you know Amy Gillett? Yeah. Yeah, she was a very close friend. So we um we shared rooms a lot um on the road and we I guess we became really close when I was in the track program during the summer and I was based in Adelaide at Del Monte. They have a an AIS track base there and uh mm. every day I trained with with Amy and caught up with her for coffees and stuff. So we were very, mm. very close and I was at the race where that tragic accident happened. So, um, mm. yeah, it was, uh, um, yeah, sorry. It's a, mm. yeah, when I reflect on the, the time when it happened, it's uh, it was a tough time. Were you, was it, was it a training ride
2: where that tragedy occurred? Because Amy Gillett was, for those who don't know, like an Australian cyclist, and then while she was at the, in that same program and while on a training ride, a bunch ride, was tragically hit by a driver in, in Germany and didn't survive. Were you on that ride with her?
1: No, on, I was out on the road, the exact same road as her, but um, maybe mm. a, a kilometre up the road. Um, so she was riding in a group of six And Mm -hmm. I'd done doing my sprint training and um, a little bit further Mm -hmm. up the road. So I'd actually turned around and come back across the accident. And that's when Mm -hmm. the coach said, don't stop, ride straight back to the hotel. And Mm -hmm. I I rode straight back to the hotel and was greeted by some Australian um, staff who said, you have to come directly into this room. And the same with all of the other professional athletes who were Australian. They were asked to come into this room. And we were there for two days while um, Australian psychologists were flown over to Germany and um, we were just given constant updates um, and were told to, in the end we were told to um, assume the worst case scenario of all of the six. Now all of the six were were injured um, to the point where it's changed their life and they've never been able to cycle again. Um, mm. and Amy was killed on impact. So um, mm. we we were Rochelle. all kept very close until we were able to find out which different hospitals they'd been flown to, and then um, mm. uh, we stayed there for quite a while, and as each of them would come out of a coma, we were allowed to go and visit them. So, um, yeah, mm. it was a very tough what time you- for Australian cyclists.
2: Oh, Rochelle, it was, it was, it was a hugely tough time, it impacted Australian sport, Australian cycling. We still remember it and we still honour Amy and the Amy Gillett Foundation has just done such great work. But that's incredible that you were there and then you were so incredibly lucky to have missed that. Did that play on your mind? Was that something that you long
1: no, thought about? it's nothing. I've I actually never thought about that. Um, I've never given it a thought. Um, once we, we left Germany, um, Simon actually, Amy's partner at the time, Simon Gillett, he flew over to Europe and he stayed with me for about three months um, Mm. and came to all the races and everything and it really helped that we were able to talk about it a lot, talk about Amy Mm. a lot. So um, I think it was good for Simon to be around what he was passionate about as well, cycling and cycling people he could talk to. Um, Mm. So... Yeah, I think we basically, in regards to racing, I never had a fear of crashing. I've had so many very, very bad crashes. Mm. I guess when I had the worst crash where I broke my pelvis, when I was first descending, turning to the right, I was scared that I was going to fall on that pelvis again, so the cornering was not really as good. Mm. But um, Mm. some cyclists, it really affects um, sports people after an accident. For me, I think after after an accident's happened and I've recovered, it kind of escapes my mind. It's mm. just deleted, I think. Mm. And so um, with Amy, though, did that
2: was that a moment where you were really confronted with your own mortality in this sport in a way, and then and how dangerous it is? Because I think sometimes we take it. For granted, you know something that's just a part of us. And cycling was a part of you. And then something like that happens, where you were there, and Amy's a close friend. I mean,
1: you know, did with, that. With, with, with Amy's um, death, it didn't actually hit me until two or three years later, when mm. because it was all so busy. And like I said, Simon was there. And it was conversation. We're all dealing dealing with it openly. But I think it was about two years later where. I was thinking about going to join um, Amy with some training and then I realised, oh, hang on, Amy's not here anymore. Um, Mm. You Mm. know, she's somebody that I really, really looked up to. She was Mm. like the ideal athlete. You know, she was hard as nails and she never let, um, you know, no excuses, you know. It was just Mm. so we were good training partners when I was in Adelaide and I was reflecting on... um, where I'd, where I'd got the fittest and where I'd become the strongest and I thought i right, would be good to go back down to Adelaide for the summer and just train hard with Amy and then mm. it really hit me and it was just a moment I was by myself and, you know, couldn't stop the tears and um, mm. I think that that was, it, it's really strange how, you know, sometimes it does take a couple of years to sink in. Mm. It was definitely the same with my grandfather Every summer I came home, I was like, okay, the first thing I do is go down and see my grandfather. And it happened for mm. about three or four years. I was like, oh, hang on, he's not here anymore. So, mm. um, yeah, I think these things affect everyone differently.
2: And they hit you at different times as well. And sometimes you just don't have any control over when grief when is going to hit you, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Olympics was something that eluded you, and you've talked about that, but. Um, you started to get a reputation in the media for having these bridesmaid tag. You yes. picked up two silver medals at Manchester Commonwealth Games.
1: Let's go Correct. back a bit. Let's go back a bit. Yeah. Go. I was second at the BMX World Championships. I was right. se- second to uh, 88, I think, or 87. Sure. Yeah, Go. Okay. So BMX, I was second at the World Championships. Junior Worlds in the first year, second. Junior Worlds in the second year, second. (laughs) And then in the elites, I was uh, second at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, Mm -hmm. four years later in Melbourne, second. And (laughs) during that time, I probably had one or two silver medals at the track world championships. And then (laughs) the first real big win came at the third attempt at the Commonwealth Games in 2010. So it took a long time to break that barrier. And what I will say is there's this saying that older people around our age or older say, if only I knew then what I know now. And Mm -hmm. for me, it's that all those second places I was convinced that I just That girl was stronger. That girl was faster. But Mm. now I look at it and I think, okay, how can you race 130 kilometers and be beaten by two centimeters Mm. and that be a physical thing? So what Mm. I know now is Mm. that there was a mental block because it it just can't be possible that you always Mm. run second and there can just be that much difference. And it was always mm. a throw for the line. It was always a couple of centimetres. So there was, a, there was a mental block until the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. Mm. And So it that, did play on your mind that you were constantly getting second? Uh, there was no way at that point in Delhi that I was going to come home <laughs> with a silver medal. It was just something <laughs> that clicked, it clicked, clicked in my mind when I arrived in Delhi. I turned my computer mm. off and my phone off maybe even a week before when I was at the World Championships commentating, maybe that's when Mm. I decided um, this time I'm not coming home with a silver medal. So, yeah, yeah. so then we had our team meeting the night before the race and I was asked to lead out and work for another rider in our team Mm -hmm. and I went away and called my coach who was back in Australia and I said, but we we always said I was not coming unless I was the lead rider yeah so then I had to call all of the big staff in and have a big meeting and say look I'm not going to work for someone else here I've done my time I'm racing to Mm, win
2: this is my time
1: yeah so we came up with a good strategy where we would both have an opportunity which was Chloe Hosking Mm -hmm. um yes she's got a really long sprint and I was Mm -hmm. only to come off her wheel if someone was coming from behind and Lizzie, mm-hmm. Ar- Lizzie Armistead from the UK, who's now Lizzie mm-hmm. Deignan, Dign- she came up on my right side pretty fast. So I jumped out of the wheel of Chloe. I ran first, Dignan, um ran second and Chloe third. So we got a good result and it was a good plan mm. um, and everything worked out. But um, not for a minute during that race did I think that, I wouldn't win. I just, something clicked and it was like, okay, I'm ready.
2: Did you feel extra pressure because you said, I know, let's change the plan. I'm here to win and I can win. Did you feel a little bit of extra pressure because of that?
1: I don't think so. I don't think I felt the pressure. Um, And I think, too, one of my other favourite quotes is fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Mm -hmm. That's my favourite too. During, mm. the, during the week before, um, I was in Geelong before we went to um, Delhi and every session I hit personal best power outputs. So yeah. I was at my absolute strongest and I think yeah. that really helps. If you're prepared, you, you get on the start yeah. line, you know that you have more power than anyone else in the race and you've got a strong team, you've got good support, it's going to come down to a sprint, I'm the fastest here, really helps to be prepared to get on the start line and know that you're the, you're the strongest. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was just a different experience to every other race I've had where there was a lot of mm. self-doubt. Um, not, my, my, my biggest problem looking back with all those bridesmaids, those second places, was that I don't think I believed in myself enough that mm. I was the best. And I don't know where that, that came from. But if I look back, I feel as though it's not that I didn't want it enough because I, I mean, I left no stone unturned and I trained harder than anyone you can imagine. Mm. But getting into the race for some reason, I just, uh, you know, like I said, from centimetres every time. Now you did something really interesting, really
2: extraordinary, Rochelle. In your career, you started your own women's professional cycling team. Take me back, where did that inspiration to do that or that impetus, where did that come from?
1: Every year of my pro cycling career, I changed teams. I experienced a lot of different teams, Italian teams, Danish teams, Belgium teams, back to an Italian team, several different Italian teams. And I felt that the sport was no, the teams, the organisation was nowhere near as professional as the athletes. And Mm. so many times I felt like I prepared and with the other athletes as well, we trained so hard, we give our whole lives to this, but the organisation let us down. And some examples as simple as this, Mm. we have, we live in Italy, we have a race in Germany and a race in Holland. And the team decide that we're going to squash into the cars, we're going to have three in the back seat, and we are going to drive and arrive at midnight or 1am and race the next day and be expected to perform. We don't mm. stop. We don't have to um, stretch our legs. We don't have mm. wa- water when we get there. We have to walk around the hotel for half an hour trying to find water or mm. the hotel is so cheap that there's no air conditioning and it's hot and <coughs> just... just mm. Little things like that where we were expected to perform but everything fell apart in the last 24 hours. Um, Mm. So I wanted, I I built this desire probably very early in my career. I'd say after I'd experienced three teams, I I just built Mm. this burning desire to create a professional team where the athletes were given an opportunity to get the best out of themselves. Um, mm. And that, that burning desire just got greater and greater when I would experience you know small things like this. We get out of the car, we walk up, flight of stairs with our bags. We've just mm. done day seven of the Giro d'Italia in 40 degree heat. We put our suitcase down and then we realize, oh, I've got to go back down now with my washing. Go back down with my washing. Then I get mm. back and then I'm like, oh, there's no water in the room. I've got to walk back down and get water. And, and I this wouldn't there. happen
2: in the men's teams at all. It didn't no. happen for the men's teams.
1: No. No. But this kind of thing was not optimal to get the best performance out of yourself. And the simple mm. things, you know, so... Um, I missed the 2012 Olympics, which I think would have been the one for me, but I had a mm. really, really heavy crash at the Giro d'Italia in July in 2012 mm. where mm-hmm. I broke, broke my pelvis in a couple of places and a few ribs, uh, collarbone, and just skin off everywhere as well. So it was um, a bad crash. It was the worst crash I ever had. Um, you know, I had to learn to mm. walk, walk again, um, which was very scary. Mm. But I took the opportunity to commentate with Eurosport at the Olympics in 2012, and I was commentating Mm -hmm. with Sean Kelly, who's a super famous Mm -hmm. ex-pro cyclist, if you don't know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and he, he had a men's team at a continental level, and he knew of my desire to start a women's team. And after we commentated the road race where the British cycling community were really, really passionate about their cycling because they just won a load of gold medals on the track, and they had Lizzie Dagnan who could win on the road and mm. the women's road race was exciting and the amount of spectators on the side of the road and everybody uh, in the UK were just like crazy about women's cycling because they had Laura mm. Trott winning gold medals and Danny King and so they were really mm. into it. And um, I, I decided there and then after commentating the women's road race that now was the time to start my professional mm. cycling team and base it in the UK or register it in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also had contact with a British cycling coach who's Australian, Shane Sutton, and he mm-hmm. he had said for two years before that, as soon as you do your team, Rochelle, I want to put my athletes in it. Because, you know, I told wow. him my, my ideas. And fortunately, mm-hmm. the three athletes he wanted to put in my team had just won gold medals at the London Olympics. So yes. I could go to sponsors and say, we have three Olympic gold medalists. Mm. Uh, my best friend, Georgia Bronzini, was the road world champion and she said, as soon as you do your team, I'm in it. I'm in your team. Yeah, so mm. auto- automatically mm. I have three Olympic gold medalists and a two-times world champion and I have something to sell. So... Mm. Um, that's when I started a, a women's pro cycling team and educated my staff on all the little things that I would expect as a cyclist. Mm. The, the athletes will leave their washing outside their door, which will be picked up by the staff. Staff get there first. There's water in the room. If it's hot, the windows mm-hmm. are open. Um, small little things that we... I was we about to say little
2: things that really make a massive difference. Yeah.
1: We, Did we, Like, was it hard in that
2: time to get sponsors on board? Like what, how difficult was it to start your own
1: team? If you put the hard work in, it's not so difficult. When I say hard work, Mm. I had um, sent proposals to 30 companies in the UK, Mm -hmm. including like insurance companies, banks, um, you know, in the sporting world, a lot of different brands. Mm. A lot of my personal sponsors that I had throughout my career knew of this dream like mm-hmm. uh, Honda, my bike sponsors, mm-hmm. and ev- everybody that I met in the industry knew that I was going to start a protein, and they had mm. already said that they would support me if I started a protein. So basically, so you
2: told them about your plan early yeah. on.
1: Yeah, I didn't know yeah, when, it, when it when it was going to happen, yeah. but I said, look, I can do this better. I, I want to. I want the athletes mm. to have the opportunity to get the best out of themselves. So my in mom. You know, the last months of 2012, I flew around to all board meetings with people um, looking for sponsorship and uh, mm-hmm. I put all my own savings, I had 300000 of my own money mm-hmm. that I put in. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I wanted to do was guarantee that I could cover some salaries for the athletes that I signed. And that we could yeah. run a, a little program even if we didn't get the funds. But mm. Hon- we already had Honda before I even started. They said that they would put money in right, right from the start. So mm. it was um, basically from then it was just if we can get extra funding, we can do more. You're really proud of what you were able to do, to, to do what you did and change that landscape for female cyclists? Yeah, I'm super proud of that, probably more so than um, my cycling career. Um, Yeah. Being able to see where where cycling is today with a minimum salary and um, I'm involved with the the UCI, I'm on the Road Commission. So Mm -hmm. um, I had a really big impact um, on setting the level of professionalism that needs to be Mm. um, introduced to women's cycling and Mm. actually doing – Doing it as well and being able to say, "Look, we do it. This is what we pay our riders. So this mm. has to be this has to be possible for for people to yeah. meet." Um, and we kind of set a we set a benchmark, and um, now the sport has even exceeded that. It's um, mm. you know the the female cyclists now say the top one hundred, maybe even two hundred, probably top one hundred. You could say are on a really decent salary. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe. F- 50 riders in the peloton are on six figures so yeah Yeah. it's come a long way
2: you um also stepped in when the australian ais european program was announced that it was going to end you didn't want to see the program that you know kickstarted your career you didn't want to see that end and you stepped in for a while and worked out a way to continue that program and to fund that program how did you do that and why did you do that
1: uh, it was actually just instinct. It was very quick. As soon as I heard about it, um, I went to the um, Australian team and said, look, what what can we work out here? I'm sure I can pull some funding from some sponsors from my pro team and ask them for extra mm. to have a development team. Um, and my sponsors were very, very keen because there was an Australian market for their products as well. So go. Hmm. Cool. When, when I, I said to them, look, we need a, a pathway and a development program for Australian cyclists because I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't mm. have been a professional cyclist without that, hands down. Mm. We can't afford to lose that program. Um, so the Australian team and the AIS provided the staffing, the insurances, the setup, and I just provided the funds mm. to, make, to make that happen. So Mm. to fly, fly, select six riders each year, fly them over to Europe, they would stay for six months and race Mm. and get an opportunity to show themselves to the professional teams and try to negotiate Mm -hmm. professional contracts. Um, Mm. So that was a great program that was actually squashed when we got a new um, president in for Cycling Australia, um, Simon Mm. Jones, and I couldn't Mm. believe it when um, I sat down with him at, the uh, Tour Down Under and he said, Mm. look, we're putting all our funding into where the medals go and I said, well, what if I got more funding? And the problem Mm. was I couldn't have my own development team race in Europe because they can only race and get a start as a national team unless Mm. they have a ranking in the top ten and we didn't want a ranking in the top ten. We wanted development riders, young riders. Yeah. yeah. So the only way we could get guaranteed starts at races They select the top 10 pro teams and they give the national teams a start. So we needed to wear the Australian national jersey and be the Australian national team. So I couldn't do it without that. But uh, the Australian national program decided that they would stop with the uh, women's development program.
2: Mm, Sad, right? Super, super sad. Hats off to you for continuing that program as long as you could. That's just, you cared, right? And that's the thing about you, Rochelle, like care about the future of the sport. It's not just about getting the most out of it for yourself. It's making sure, you know, the legacy lives on. Yeah, um,
1: yeah look, if any, any any young rider contacted me today, I would move heaven and earth to try, if they had yeah. the talent, to, to get them over to Europe. And, um, yeah. you know, I still I still do love that when I get a random message from an Australian cyclist asking for some support. I mean, I, I, mm. I love that. It gives me a real high. So, <laughs> yeah.
2: You mm. do love a challenge um, and starting a women's professional team while you're still racing is certainly uh, a big challenge. Everest is mm. your next big challenge. Where did this come from? Have you always wanted to summit Everest?
1: Yeah. Um, so Because you're not a climber. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not a climber, and it's completely different preparation and training than what <laughs> I'm used to. I have to yeah. try to go slow, slow, slow. All the movements are different. Everything's just—it's mm. com- it, it, for me—it's a very difficult, difficult challenge. Um, yeah, I always saw these documentaries and movies of people trying to summit Everest, and obviously it's become a little bit easier with uh, oxygen and the technology with the clothing mm. and the crampons and everything, but it's still very, very difficult. And I can, mm. say, that, I can say that because I've been to base camp and nearly died um, from mm. alt- altitude sickness. So um, Wow,
2: at base camp.
1: At base camp. So now when I do climbs of 4,000, 5,000 metres quite comfortably, I still think to myself, but I've got to do double that. Height, mm. the, you know, the air's going to be so thin, you know, even mm. at five thousand five hundred meters at base camp. You're just taking one step, having a rest, one step, having a rest, you know. And um, Everest is over eight thousand meters, so right. it's yeah. it's it's scary, and I, I'm nervous. I'm scared. I don't know how my body's going to if it's going to cope with the altitude. Um, yeah, but. You know, after running the women's pro team and maybe I'll do that again in the future, I felt like a break and uh, wanted to do something for myself because I sure. really missed that. Being so busy with businesses and stuff, I really mm. miss, missed that physical challenge of having mm. to get up every day and do exercise and have a program and have a reason why you're doing it. I stopped yeah. ex- exercising because I didn't have a reason to do it. Um, so... Yeah. I knew I had You to never have... really
2: formally retired. You just kind of went from riding in the protein to like it took over your life managing mm. the protein as well. So you kind of just Faded out of... Out of
1: exercise.
2: Cycling,
1: yes, yeah. I yeah, I, yeah, I faded out and I, I became so busy that I was just working day and night around the clock to serve other people and to give them the best opportunity they could and mm. I, I enjoy it very much but I was getting, um, you know, after six years of basically not sleeping, not looking after my uh, diet and mm. not exercising,
0: mm.
1: I just kind of decided that I need to slow things down here, get my health back on track and start, yeah, yeah. you know, um, for me, it's, it's there's still no balance, lifestyle mm. balance, because I'm mm. all, all or nothing with everything. I can't yeah, just athletes
2: do things
1: that. half-heartedly. So when yeah. I, but I must admit when I decided a few months ago that I, I would attempt Everest and I'd make that commitment, mm. I didn't realize that I would have to go back to being a full-time professional athlete mentality. And I didn't realize to get, realize, fit, I didn't, enough. To get yeah. fit enough. I didn't realize until two weeks ago when I showed up to um, probably three weeks ago to Chamonix and thought I could just climb a four thousand meter mountain. And I got halfway up it and I just didn't, I couldn't take another step. I was just like, mm. I'm not fit enough, you know. I have mm. to, I'm going to have to work really, really hard to do this. Mm. So mm. it kind of hit home and uh, I was a few days pretty depressed about the fact that I couldn't climb that mountain. Mm. And uh, with, my, with my coach and my doctors, I decided, okay, from today I'm going to put my training first before everything else mm. until mm. until Everest I mean it's it's six seven months away so it's it's that's not, not a, that long is it really it's not how long. are you
2: training what are you doing for training how do you prepare for a climb for ev- climbing Everest
1: um, the specific stuff's quite important to get onto those mountains that are four or five thousand meters um, to get the, like the Chamonix, the Chamonix, yeah. To get the action of climbing, a lot of I've done a lot of rock climbing, and now that's probably one of my strengths. It's going to be that mm. slow through the snow with a thin air. That's going to, I'm going to struggle with. So, for example, mm. this morning I've just done one hour on the step machine in the gym, mm-hmm. um, and then this afternoon, um, because we're on the tenth floor, I'll put my hiking boots on and my backpack. And mm. I will do one hour walking up and down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow I'll do an hour of swimming in the morning and then mm-hmm. th- three hours of stair walking. Um, mm. You know, I'm going to have to get to the point where I'm doing some six-hour stair training because mm. sometimes we will we, we'll be six to eight hours just slow stepping. Climbing. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, I've done a little bit. Um, here on the treadmill, but there's nothing like the real thing you know being how out do there climatized
2: the to the air though how do you what do you have to do to kind of uh, prepare for the lack of oxygen up there and uh, like as you said, oxygen, Sickness. is, it, is, it,
1: I've, I've is been, it? I've been asking all the same questions you are asking because I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Is answers. there an internet <laughs> site? Is there like a training <laughs> program, like when you train for a marathon, you can find so many training mar- <laughs> yeah. preparations and plans on, uh, online. The the only thing that um that I that I need to do is a six thousand meter climb, which is in October, um in mm-hmm. Nepal called Amadablam. Um, so mm-hmm. that's six thousand meters. We'll do without oxygen. So let's see how the body goes without
2: oxygen. And Chamonix at four thousand, you got six oxygen yeah. sickness.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, at four four thousand meters, you got sick. Well,
1: for, right, five thousand five hundred is where I got the um, AMS. They call it altitude mountain sickness, and I also altitude had, sickness.
2: Yes, not yeah. oxygen sickness.
0: Got that yeah wrong. altitude sickness of course. <laughs>
1: sickness. Yeah. Yeah, my oxygen oxygen saturation at sea level is around 98 99 100%. My my oxygen saturation in my blood went down to 38 and it happens Whoa. very very quickly. So you're climbing you feel fine I'd actually reached um the base camp and I was on the way back down and I was just walking down and I started to stumble and I was like you know like I've never been drunk in my life but it was kind of like I couldn't Mm. walk I couldn't walk a straight line I just kept stumbling I got got to the hut I was the first one back down to the hut and um, got changed into some dry warm clothes and I was just sitting there and uh, I felt quite fine to be honest Um, maybe just a little bit lightheaded or dizzy but they started to test everyone's oxygen And everyone Mm. was around, say, 70 or 80, and they passed it to me, and it was 38. And I said, well, check it again because I feel all right, 38. And then it was just panic stations. They put me on the oxygen, and oxygen levels went straight back up to 100. They took it off, straight back down to 38, and that's when they said, okay, we need to get you. It was already dark, so they said, we need to get you down the mountain. Two of the Sherpas are going to go with you, and you go, you don't say goodbye to anyone. You just go as fast as you can down the mountain. So I'm like, okay, I'll run down and get 1,000 metres down and then I'll have oxygen and I'll be fine. Um, the Sherpa said after 10 minutes I passed out. So they, ah. they had to carry me um, and they had to rig up a thing on their back, they, a piece of wood so because I couldn't hold on. I couldn't hold on to them Uh. and the two of them had to kind of carry me and um, apparently uh, when we got to some oxygen, because we only had one cylinder up at um, base camp, they Mm. couldn't use it all because they still had the rest of the group. That's why they said to go down. Right, Um, yeah. So the the Sherpas carried me, I don't know for how long, through the dark, through the night, um, but when I woke up the next morning, I was in a tin shed with a string coming down with a drip, and the floor was just uh. mu- like dirt. And I was like, "Hello, hello!" And uh, huh. this American doctor came in and he said, "Ah, oh, Rochelle, I thought you were going to be the first person that ever died on my table." I said, "Oh, wow. I, f- I said I feel fine." And he said, "He said if these two guys didn't, if they were five minutes later, you you would be dead. If oh, they wow. were five minutes later getting here." you would be dead. So,
2: and you didn't even feel that altitude sickness come on. It just,
1: just, it just suddenly
2: just hit you. Yeah. Is there hallucinations too with that, with altitude sickness? I I've watched a few Everest films as well.
1: <laughs> I remember. I'm fascinated with Everest. Be, being on uh, the Sherpas back and when they changed me from one person to the other, I'd kind of wake up and I remember just looking for light, lights. I wanted to see a village mm. and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to die. If I couldn't see lights, I'd say, oh, I'm going to die. And I really wanted, wow. to, I wanted to say to the Sherpas, guys, because I could tell they were panicking and trying, guys, just give up. Don't worry. I'm, you know, I'm happy. I've, got a, I've had a good life. But you can't speak. I couldn't speak. But these are the oh, things wow. I remember thinking. I just want my, my mum to know that I've had the best life ever. And I wanted to mm. tell them to give up. And, you know, um, then you just be out again. But every time I'd come to, I'd just look for lights and I'd be like, no, nah, I'm gonna die. You wow. know, that, that's what was going through my my head. I didn't have hallucinations, but I desperately wanted to get a message to the Sherpas, but I couldn't speak. Couldn't wow. even, I couldn't, couldn't move, couldn't speak. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Do they give you any tips how to prepare for that then? Because so like say, that was Base Camp of Everest, right? Everest? Yeah. Yeah. They say that um, they, they believe that it won't happen this time because last time we went up, I went up with a group of athletes um, who mm. uh, do the 4 by four hundred meter relay and um, we went up way, way too quick and that was sure. the cause of it. Um, right. So I, I was explained by the guide I'll have on the next three climbs um, that if the program says six hours, and you take five hours and then that's one hour that your body can't catch up. And then the next day, acclimatize, yes. And then if you go quicker the next day by two hours, then you've got three hours that you've not acclimatized. Now, mm. on our programs, when it said a six or eight hour hike, we, we were running it in two hours every day. And then mm. we'd, get, we'd get to the hut and we'd go, oh, we could probably run up that peak. So we'd go do another peak and come back down. So, That's like
2: four hours, eight hours of acclimatizing that you've lost, y- right?
1: Yeah. So every day, I think the maximum we took to do the six or eight hours it was supposed to take was two hours. So wow. we apparently, if I take the time to acclimatize that it won't happen like that. Right. Um, Gosh. Because it, it happened to three yeah. of three of us on the group. So it had to be held. And all athletes. Down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: The our overcrowding of Everest is an issue. Um, yeah. Obviously that didn't happen during COVID, but is that an issue as well? Like the big queues for people wanting to summit and the overcrowding of that?
1: Yeah. Um, I've decided to pay the maximum amount that you can mm-hmm. to have the privilege of not having to go in the queues, which means that we will be the first to take off up up the mountain. Sure. So yeah. I'll, be, I'll be climbing um, with Nims dye. That's not paying for that. You like that's uh, if you can do
2: that. Like that's the safest way, right, to do that.
1: Yeah, I, because of my my health and um, already having experienced AMS and pulmonary mm. edema, um, I have to take the precautions. I have to have the best team mm. around me. Um, mm. And there's a uh, Netflix documentary called 14 Peaks and it's about a guy oh. called Nimsdi, who did those 14 peaks in a record of uh, I think 35 days. He did mm-hmm. the 14 8,000-meter oh peaks. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And the record that stood before him was eight years to do those 14 peaks and he did them in 35 days. What? Well, he, he's going to be my guide. Um, right. So I'm wow. – I've got the most experienced team around me to sure. make sure, you know, the doctors and everything were all in contact because if you've had the AMS before and the pulmonary, there was pulmonary and something else, edema that I had, um, fluid yeah. on the brain and on the lungs, um, that you do wow. have to, you, do, you do have to take every precaution possible.
2: Yeah. And you, this is a big investment for you, isn't it? Like you're a successful businesswoman and you've, you've got a number of businesses, but this is like, you've, you've had to make a few sacrifices to be able to, to kind of invest in, in this experience.
1: I have to live for today, you know, and I had to find a way to be able to afford to do Mount Everest. And I don't, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, Mm. You know, in the future I may be able to buy another apartment, but for now, for now, if I'm only, if I have a lifespan of two years, what do I want to achieve in that two years? Well, I've always Mm. wanted to climb Mount Everest. So Mm. that's why, you know, I sometimes I think to myself, don't put off until tomorrow anything Mm. that you don't want to die having left undone. So... Mm basically, um, I'm living, living for today because I want to achieve that. I want to achieve standing Mm. on the highest point of the world. So a little bit of sacrifice there, but, um,
2: yeah. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars, isn't it? Can I ask how much it is? It's like,
1: yeah, the, um, are you comfortable? Yeah. I'm comfortable with that because it's all actually looking through all the different, um, programs that are on offer. The prices are very, very similar. So, um, Mm to do um, a, a group package like where you'll have 10 people will mm-hmm. cost you around 150 to 200,000. If you want mm-hmm. to if you want to do it with a smaller group of 5 or 6, it's 300,000. That's mm-hmm. what I've chosen to do. This is US dollars. US dollars. dollars. Yeah, yeah, US dollars. Yeah. So, and that's just for the Everest attempt. So yeah. you still need to buy your flights to Kathmandu and, and back um, mm-hmm. and all of your equipment, which has been very expensive Hugely because it's expensive, a, lot, yeah. a lot of stuff, like 1,500 yeah. euros for a sleeping bag and then they tell me you need to have two different sleeping bags and I'm like, <laughs> right. yeah. So there's a lot of, there's a, I think I've calculated um, just, for the, just for the expedition, it'll be over 500,000 Australian dollars.
2: But we're worth it. Once it, in a lifetime yeah. opportunity, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you said you're scared. You you do have fear. Um, I'm
1: I'm I'm scared that my body will let me down. You know, I know I'm mentally mm. tough enough, and if my body will allow me at altitude to keep going, I, I can, I will. You know, even if my mm. my fingers and toes are freezing off, I'll just keep going. Mm. But mm. I'm the altitude because I've. Had that experience where you can't control. Yeah. I felt like I couldn't control it. It was just like yeah. one, one minute I'm fine, and the next I've passed out. I'm gone. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that that would be disappointing for me if I get to six thousand meters and I pass out and I can't attempt mm. going any further.
2: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So, so not scared of death or anything like that. Just just worried that the whole attempt will come to a stop if my body just chooses to shut down. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I know I've got all the safety and insurances around me to get me down the mountain safely. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Have
2: you watched some of the, you've watched a lot of the Everest films?
1: Yeah, I keep watching them over and over. So because yeah. they, <laughs> they they scare you to the point where you want to train harder and be more prepared. And you want to know mm. you want to know things. I mean, when I when I did my my training camp the last couple of weeks in Chamonix, um, I was learning a lot about. I love about,
2: Chamonix. I love that place so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I was learning. I had no idea about the crevices, the crev- crevasses. They on the crevasses where yes. the where they just open up, and we were walking over them, and you know, stepping over them, and I'll have to walk across ladders across them, and um, just and that's like ice where it's just a, a crack, a, big, a massive
2: crack, metres yeah. wide. Yeah. yeah. And it, can, and it, it can, just goes it, down. You can't see the bottom.
1: It's so deep, yeah, and it can just open up at any time underneath you as well. So I'm, mm. I actually got a little bit scared when we're walking around these crevasses and stepping over them. I'm thinking, well, hang on, if this, this, this snow ice underneath me could open up at any time, it could just open up. Yeah. The, that's the um I think the thrill of doing things like this is that nature you're in the hands of nature and I believe I believe in 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 nature caring for for us you know mm. so I, I feel a part of nature you know and mm. um yeah I'm, I'm just it's like do, if you learn too much you can get a little bit scared and sometimes you think well I don't even want to know about that because if I don't know that the earth would open up underneath me, then I will not be worried about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that.
2: I totally get that. Because <laughs> going across those ladders as well because you've got the picks on the ends of your your yep. boots and, I mean, just walking across those ladders and that's like the biggest, a uh, big ones like to get to second base camp, is that right? Yeah. Like there's, yeah. you got to go through those ladders and ride over this crevasses as well. When I through get the ladder, to, how tricky I, is that on your feet you can't trip and then you're down there.
1: Well watching, watching the documentaries, I've started to think that um, when you see the crampons of the big feet, they can rest on the ladder on the two the first the first bit of the ladder and the second bit the foots on both, but my foot's so small I'll have to balance on one. So wow. when, I, when I get back to Australia I'm just going to put a ladder outside and put my Mm -hmm. crampons on, and I need Mm. to be able to balance across the ladder without holding anything and be comfortable Mm. and know where to put because I haven't walked on a ladder yet with crampons, so I need Mm. to know where to put my feet and if I can balance across the ladders without using my hands, um, I'll be happy, but when I get back to Australia, I'm going to get a ladder out and I'm going to put it on the lawn and I'm going to just practice in my crampons. Wow. My boots trying wow. to balance across it. Because I, I before, a couple of months ago, I didn't even know what crampons were and I'd never walked on snow with crampons. No, I've never heard of them. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're the
2: boots that we're talking about, aren't we? They're, yeah, they're the,
1: they're the spiky things that strap yes. onto the bottom of your boots.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Far yeah. out. It's so extraordinary. What- <laughs> um, I'm so excited for you. I've loved following your journey on Instagram as well. When you do it afterwards come back can we can we do an <laughs> updated episode to talk about yeah, it that would be absolutely. awesome yeah Yeah. All right. We'll have part B of Rochelle Gilmore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime,
2: world championships in Wollongong. Um, yeah, where I live, I'm really excited. We'll have to catch up during that time um, as well. I'm, I'm really excited. Um, best of luck with it. It is fascinating. I'll live vicariously through you. So yeah. Can you, we finish off every podcast by asking our guests what message they would send their younger self. And if you could go back and tell that little BMX loving Rochelle Gilmore something, what would you tell her?
1: For me, I would definitely say to believe in yourself and have, when I say courage, I had no fear, but believe in myself more, Mm. I think. Um, believe in myself. Courage is
2: different to no fear isn't it?
1: Yeah. They're two different things aren't they? Yeah have the courage and believe in yourself um, that you deserve it you can do it you know that's something like I said throughout my whole entire career that I struggled with just believing I was worthy of winning and that I could do it so yeah I'd I'd tell my younger self believe you're the best, believe you've done the work, believe you can do it, and just have the courage to do it. Yeah,
2: You're an extraordinary human, Rochelle. You've done such amazing things for women's cycling and you've worn your heart on your sleeve, but you've also, I mean, people could have just walked away and turned the other cheek, but you didn't. You set about to do something about it and and you've made an impact. And, um, yeah, I can't wait for this next big challenge which i mean you've shown you have a ton of courage throughout your career but this will be something else so the courage is there right you've got it But thank you so much for joining me on on her game and sharing your story and part b after everest let's do it
1: thanks sam
0: The game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Nikki Sitch, executive producer Jennifer Goggin.